Hello and welcome to Business Without with me, Dominic Frisby, and Ori Clark is perhaps the only single-branded, multi-discipline practice operating in the UK. And what does that mean? It means that basically it is an accountancy and a legal firm. And one of the partners and the founder of this podcast, my co-host, is Andy Ori. And Andy made the observation that so many of the firm's clients are doing such varied and interesting things. And Andy wanted to find a way to share those interesting things, these stories with a bigger audience. And his means to do that is this podcast. Now, the irony is, of course, that today's guest is not one clients. In fact, he is one of the firm's ex-clients, and we will no doubt find out the reason for that as this podcast goes on. So Andy, hello. Who have we got on the show today, and what are they going to be talking about? Hello, Dominic. Thank you. Um, well, we are delighted to be joined by Lachlan... Actually, Faulkner? I've never really pronounced your surname. Faulkner? Yep. And uh, Lachlan has built up uh, an impressive business in a really interesting space called Stilts as in um, stilts of uh, uh, someone would use in a circus, but spelt with a Z. And it is a lift for your home. It is really a competitor to the sort of Stanner stairlift, the speedy, speedy roundabout way to get upstairs. But uh, stilts is a much better, much more ingenious solution to a simple problem about mobility and uh, buildings with more than one floor and how do you get from one floor to the other. and yeah, uh, uh, Lachlan's originally from Sydney in Australia. And uh, yeah, hi Lachlan, how you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well. Now, I don't feel we should start, because I'm not even clear, 10 years ago or, or however long ago it, it, it was um, that the you, you stopped uh, being a client. I think the, the good place to start <laughs> would be about uh, stilts, I feel, you know, and uh, explaining it better better than I had and where you are today with the business. Yep. Uh, so 10 years ago, me and my uh, co-founder and I moved from Sydney, Australia, Cameron, uh, with the help of Uri Clark, actually. So, uh, Andy, you actually helped us get some free office space uh, oh, good. for six months, which, to be fair, helped a lot considering we had no money. I uh, had bought one-way tickets from Australia to England and uh, any penny saved was very useful. So... In terms of the company, uh, you described it pretty well. We sort of came up with the idea for a vertical home lift solution that um, could really compete with stair lifts that we thought were ugly, um, quite demeaning for the user. People weren't really proud or aren't proud to, to, to own a stair lift, but the market is clearly there on the need side. So we thought, um, why don't we go and compete with those guys? Moved to the UK to do it because uh, that's the home of the stair lift, the home of the mobility industry, really. Um, so that kind of made sense to put us on a bigger, a bigger shelf, so to speak. Uh, and at the same time, the two of us that moved to the UK, Cam's brother, Cameron, my co-founder, his brother and father moved to China to start manufacturing. So there were four of us in total at the start of the business. Two of us moved from Sydney to the UK. The other two moved from Sydney to outside Shanghai. So uh, we were definitely, definitely all in, um, which I think helps uh, in terms of starting a business. I really do think you're just in a different world compared to, A, people that are already living in the same market. So there's two things there. It's going all in, but also being from abroad. Uh, I think both of those things really do help uh, a startup. But in terms of the company, 
Um, we managed to get through to the first year, which was really tough. Um, but, you know, slowly but surely got some traction. So I think in the first year, sold about 20 units, uh, turned over about 300 grand, something like that. And 10 years later, we turned over 30 million, employed 250 people uh, around the world, 3,000 units last year. So I'd say it's been pretty good so far. How many of the units are in the UK and how many abroad? Yeah, so export's a big part of our business. In fact, we've had a pretty good run picking up export awards, if I say so myself. Uh, so 1,000 roughly in the UK, 2,000 roughly abroad. Is your factory here or do you have the, is the factory in somewhere cheaper? It's still in China. Uh, it's still in China, And yeah. it's going to give so, you a telling off about that. <laughs> we can't... This well, is we the can have a discussion the about that. The whole, the whole of the world's airlift oh, resources are oh. centred in China. Okay. <laughs> Tell us, um, have you got? An, are you going to stay in China or are you going to move somewhere else? Manufacturing, no, we, we're, we're pretty set there. I mean, what I would say is that wages are growing pretty quickly out there, so it's not like it was 20 years ago. Uh, it's not the benefit really isn't as great, although if you're already there and you've gone through the pain and jumped <laughs> over all the hurdles that we did, it kind of makes sense to still leverage it. Um you know, got some horror stories, but really it was pretty smooth sailing because James, one of my co-founders, uh, you know, speaks fluent Mandarin, which doesn't hurt. Um, it's our own factory. We employ other people. Uh, I don't think it really makes sense to move it, especially because we've got such an international business. It's a good place logistically. Uh, but uh, if tariffs were to go up across the board, you could, you could move it. Um, so... It's not, it's not really in our plans to move it, if I'm being honest. And the jobs were never here. Like the, just when we founded the company, we founded the factory abroad. So it's not like we ever took jobs away from anywhere else, which I think is... No, more, more on the question is, do you feel your technology is protected? Is, it, is, it, is your... Yeah. You know, you own the factory, do you? You, yeah. you? you wouldn't have originally, though. So when you hear about problems in China, one thing I would say is it's usually always a contract manufacturer that, rips people off. So yeah. people, you hear horror stories about, oh, I bought these widgets in China and then the container turned up and it was empty or I don't know, it had, was full of the wrong stuff or whatever. But that's because the, the person trying to do the deals on the other side of the world and it's just different. If it's your own factory, it's no different to operating anywhere else. But I yeah. truly, truly believe that. It could have been your own factory originally. When you started out with small, you must have worked, you must have done so, you know, gone to a, someone, a manufacturer, surely, or no? No, we, we started it ourselves. It was just Peter and James in the beginning building lifts. I mean, it was slow going. Now we have a wholly, fo wholly owned foreign enterprise, a woofy in the uh, accounting game, as they say. Oh, okay. The problem with that, they, they rely on a lot of capital up front. They're usually reserved for multinationals, and we were a startup and uh, sort of blagged our way through that one. That's kind of what I say. Like The fact that we've jumped through all those hoops and did all that, uh, it's a pretty good position to be in for a company of our size. So it'd be pretty unique. And who, who actually designed the lift in the first place? What's the story there? That's a good story. So we actually didn't design it. Uh, a, a Dutch guy who actually lived most of his life in Tasmania designed it um and he put a patent on the product um but he only registered it in australia and new zealand um and the story goes that he was trying to get his product distributed around the mainland of australia which is what you'd have to do if you were starting a business in tasmania 
And he went to all the bigger lift companies in Australia, of which at the time, circa 2005, um, one of my co-founders, Peter, actually owned one of those bigger lift companies in Sydney. So the product came across his desk. He really liked it. And he sort of helped co-develop it with the technical inventor, took it from like a Heath Robinson into something which could be mass produced. And then when the GFC came in 2008, that lift company in Sydney that my co-founder owned it sadly didn't make it. So that's kind of why we started Stilts uh, afresh and abroad as a new company in the UK because there was nothing I really see. to hold on to in, 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 uh, in Australia in that regard. But we took the product, improved on it, took manufacturing to China, got the cost down, uh, and subsequently have changed it, redesigned it, improved it. I, I can see a product like this, um, there being a big demand for it, maybe in cities, because presumably somebody who lives in a big house, even in suburbia, you know, they, they don't have a lift in their house, but they, they as they get older, they still want yeah. to stay in the same house. And so these put in, and that enables them to stay in the same house and get up yeah, the exactly. stairs. Exactly. It's, it's a proven sort of problem at this point. I mean, there's the stairlift industry is about a billion dollars and growing at about 20% a year because it's an aging population. Uh, we just think we have a better way of getting to that market. We get to people younger. What's so special about your stairlift? Uh, well, I'll have to stop you there. It's not a stairlift. Uh, oh, sorry. Like, uh, that's, yeah, that's all right. It's a competitor to the stairlift. I mean, it's a competitor in terms of, I think this slightly falls into the ingenuity of it. You know, like all things, um, you, you, an invention is made, the lift, and, and it's sort of left alone once it works. Now, my... My understanding is what was sort of novel is rather than having a, you know, to install a lift in a house, you would have to build a huge mechanism on top with weights and everything. Whereas this, the, your approach was much simpler, put in some brackets and put in a way of clawing up those brackets and cut a hole in a ceiling. Is that accurate? I'm like, you're, you're laughing at me. It's basically, it's, so we have a vertical small lift. So it's it takes one or two people. It's like a pod it's vertical. We cut a hole in the floor and we install the lift and it takes all the loading in the way it's designed. That is what's novel about it really is that it doesn't need any load bearing walls, which means you can put it in a lot of places, which means the customer has a lot of choice where they put it, which equals sales. The problem with stair lifts is that not only are they ugly, uh, they go on the stairs. So when you open the front door, the first thing you see is a staircase because of the way houses have been designed for a hundred years uh, and it's embarrassing and it ruins the stairs for other users. You can put our lift in the corner of a room, of, of any room. Um, you can put it in an open void inside, a, inside of a turning staircase or something like that or put it in a cupboard. So it's, it's just, I just think it's a better way of getting upstairs. It's, it's, it has the same utility as a conventional lift you would use in a high-rise building, but for your home, uh, smaller, neater, better to look at. So it does all the things of a big lift with all the, you know, the benefit of a neat, compact package yeah i mean stanner stanner i know it's not a stairlift what you own stanner sort of own the like in the same way that you think of you know when you think of a vacuum cleaner you think hoover yeah stanner have sort of become the because i remember my father's 65th birthday on the menu i did a joke that it was sponsored by stanner stairlifts good because good so because kind of everyone young. knows stanner. their average sale age is 82 believe it or not well that was part but yeah <laughs> What's your relation? What's your relationship with Stanner now? Are they are they are they uh, upset with you or? Yeah, it's a funny. It's a long story, Stanner, and that was kind of where Andy. We would 
that was probably the peak of our relationship is when Standard tried to acquire us. Like we'd been in the we'd been in the UK for six months, and Standard tried to buy us, and uh, we thought it was hilarious because you know we're in <laughs> these big boardrooms with Standard, and um, they'd say things like, and I'd ask them questions like, "Oh, you know, so how many lifts do you think we've sold?" And they'd look at each other in the eye. Oh, low low hundreds, two three hundred a year. I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd sold two, installed none, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, we just uh, we just loved it. But it just it didn't work. It just we were too far apart. They wanted to crawl all over us, buy us out, change the brand name, and probably just put us on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, that's probably the segue into you know. I mean, we. we at the time, I think I think certainly Cameron was quite attracted by the offer. They were slightly blowing smoke up your ass, and I think probably for yeah. two people who've been yeah. backpacking and busting their ass in in grease and sweat, someone's putting checks on the table and talking about let's do this together. And I mean, and you said it in your introduction. I I hadn't really sort of clicked it that sort of the UK is what uh, because of Stanner, which is a British company, is sort of a leader in yeah. What is yeah. this called? Internal mobilization? <laughs> they call it, they, uh, it's somewhere, they, they like the word mobility, but that's been accosted by technology now and electric cars and urban mobility. The other one is home care, which has also been accosted. So it really doesn't have, uh, doesn't really have a name, which is kind of its problem right now. But what I would say is the industry is only going to grow very quickly, I think. And I think COVID will only exacerbate that. But yeah, back to standard. So, well, the stairlift market, um, you know, they're big British company. They've done incredibly well. They've been around for 150 years, I think. So what do they turn over? The stairlift business about 200 million a year. They, they have a lot of cash, but a lot of old money, 150 years worth of uh, business. So like, I think they might have 200 million in cash. Wow. And why, why does it, you said it's 20% growth a year. I know that people are getting older, but it's not that many yeah. people getting older, are there? Well, well they, they aren't growing that quickly, but the more, the more aggressive stairlift companies can grow that quickly, easily. But it's an aging population. There's, there's a lot going on here. There's aging population, which is happening way quicker than people would realise. I mean, way faster. You talk about economic burden, this thing's going to be probably the biggest economic burden we can think of, but we don't want to deal with it because it hasn't quite hit yet. It's probably 20, 30 years away. So there's that. There's this trend because of the aging population, it's cheaper to age in place. So they're sort of the meaning of those two trends. So they'll do quite well. They probably grow at about 5 10% a year. They're still growing. Themselves. Yeah. Because you would yeah. think, I, you know, given the choice, and you advertise fairly heavily in the UK, given the choice between your products, I can't see anyone choosing them. Is it they internationally? <laughs> Is it internationally yeah. or something that people don't aren't aware of you yet? Or yeah, it's. I would just say that it just it's just a time factor. Uh, I've been surprised by that as well. For me, in my brain, it's it's illogical to buy a stairlift, but they're cheaper, right? right. So, not, so not everyone buys a Mercedes. The way the way I actually frame it is that a stairlift is like buying a moped. It'll take one person. It'll still get you there from A to B, but there's some issues with the moped. Only takes one person. If it rains, you're fucked. If you fall off, you're fucked. Um, and not everyone's going to buy a moped, or shouldn't, in my opinion. You're better off buying a car with four wheels with a roof that can take people, luggage, things, etc. cetera. Um, but it's certainly... That certainly isn't the case. The stairlift market is far larger than whatever category we're in. Um, but I do 
think we're eating into it and yeah, you know, a lot more growth in us to get there, but I do think it's possible. I, I do. Are you enjoying, I mean, you've gone through, if you're a 30 million turnover company now, you're, you're, you know, medium size, they would say, I would call it quite large, but are you enjoying that, you, you know, development? You see, you know, what's the next stage? Do you go and list or? <laughs> uh, I don't like the fact that the bigger you get, the more management you have to do. That bit doesn't quite compute with me. Uh, but it's got, certain advantage obviously there's a lot more division of labor which is great um you earn the right to do projects which when i started were just you know in my dreams that we eventually just get to do so that's kind of cool we still have a long way to go with r&d the product category is just beginning the product life cycle is just beginning this is what i think and i think my colleagues would agree um which is why i'm so bullish about where the market's going and this COVID stuff is just going to help the whole industry because people are going to spend more money on their home because the home is deemed quarantined. You know, it's like your little quarantine palace. So people are rightly going to spend more money on that uh, asset. They're certainly going to age in place more because care homes are fucked. Uh, they were already fucked, but COVID has just shined a spotlight on that. A bit like Amazon was always going to beat Tesco, but it just sort of hit fast forward. Uh, on that so similar similar trends happening there why were care um, homes already fucked why did you think they were already i because I, I think aging in place would beat it i just think ultimately uh governments will legislate to push people at home because they won't have a choice because there's no money to do an alternative and the care homes are very expensive and the service you get the product isn't very good and i don't see people choosing it if they could avoid it yes Yes, you'd always rather stay at home, I guess, yeah. Plus, it's now just a death warrant, right? Death. Oh, the death warrant of just the risk of further diseases and things. Yeah, yeah. Even when COVID, I mean, will COVID pass? I mean, I see Oxford University's leading the race, so big up Oxford. But, you know, if we get a vaccine and then we'll have to, re you know, have different vaccines every year. But you feel for other diseases or just this COVID thing or be there I forever just, now oh no not COVID I just think people will have to design for viruses in general and I don't think care homes in their current guys will pass that test so I'm not saying care homes will go to zero that's that would be ludicrous but um they'll have to change sufficiently which will make the economics of it difficult to achieve therefore less people will stay in care homes and they won't want to and therefore they'll go elsewhere one of those things which will be aging in place and actually, when you, if you, the, the, the unfortunate thing with the older population at the moment is they're not digital age people, are they? By the time we're old, hopefully we still know how to use Zoom or whatever it is then. We, we can stay at home because the socialization is something that probably isn't great in care homes, but that's part of it, isn't it? You end up with a single parent living at home and things, and that's, that's different, you know, living, that's difficult. You want, you know, you want them to have company or stuff like that. I guess the future is a digital one where people be able to pop in easily digitally and all of that. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the problem, I think in reality, care homes just haven't been that. There's just been like a race to the bottom. And whilst in theory, they're meant to be social places, they, I don't, in my opinion, they just haven't done a great job. Um, so there's a big opportunity 
in care homes in general, you're starting to see it. There's a few firms in the UK which just started um, taking a nod from, you know, Australia and America in that space. It takes a lot of money, huge amounts of debt. I mean, billions and billions in debt uh, to go and buy the land, develop it and build these new products. So I just think it'll be different. There was a big scam, big scandal, big scam um, with a chap up north called who had a company called Northern Powerhouse Developments. You would buy a care home in a in a uh, project somewhere, and you would buy the care home now, but and you would give the money now, but it would take him three years to to build and get and let out, and then so he would you would buy it now. He would take your money, build it, get planning permission, build it, and then let it out. Uh, you know, as, as a care home, in, as part of a larger care home facility, and then you would then collect rent, and he would pay you a dividend. And this was the model, and it was a sort of way of bypassing bank funding. Mm. But it turned about out to be a huge pyramid scheme. Oh, yeah. And it's just recently now, in the last few months, completely unraveled. And I just think, you know, it's it's quite it's had quite a lot of publicity, and there's been so many care home disasters. I think you know investors are going to be very careful. Then on the other hand, I don't know if you remember Theresa May's dementia tax, the, the failed venture that was her dementia tax, which she tried to get past when she um, was was in that sort of disastrous general election for her. I forget when it was, 2016, I think, 2017 maybe. And um, the idea was is that there's this ticking time bomb of who's going to pay for all the dementia care. Yeah. And the dementia tax was effectively a way of getting the person with the dementia to pay the tax out of their what would become their future inheritance or their homes. Yeah. And and that fired as well. There's just so many problems <laughs> with care homes. There, there's there just are. a vast shortage. So you're, I, I, I couldn't agree more with the... And also, on a third argument is that a lot of the time, even though families might not want it, the care provided at home by loved ones in conjunction with visiting nurses is often superior to the care that you get in a home by, you know, nurses and care workers. You aren't paid very much money a lot of the time, so there isn't that additional motivation. You know, it ends up, you know, with loved ones providing the care or supervising other people giving the care, the care ends up being to a higher standard. So all these different dynamics are, are, are going to push people to, more and more people to, to be staying at home. Yeah, I agree. I think pensions in general are a huge issue. Um, like, who's going to pay for all this quantitative easing? All you know, um, we're about to have the largest percentage of population become retired that we've ever seen. Yet, coupled with the most quantitative easing that's ever been seen, so uh, let's say a perfect storm or perfect shit storm. Yeah, I would predict. Uh, economically in the next 20 or 30 years, which is a shame because I think like generally every generation should be better off. I'm not sure that's true. I think maybe people of my parents' generation probably have had the best of it. Do you really, um, do you really think that though? Would you want to go and live I that don't. era? You, you, you'd give up all the technology and cool gadgets and shit and your Bose headphones and your... You know, undoubtedly there have been uh, advancements in technology, but I think in real terms, I think they might be the wealthiest. I mean, anyone who owned a home in our parents' generation, so I'm talking now what someone who would be, I don't know, 50 to 70, say, something like that, um, they all got wealthy. They got wealthy. They bought a home. 
they got wealthy, but they couldn't afford TVs were expensive. People didn't have dishwashers, you know. Well, yeah. we, we, we have more shit in our home. They couldn't afford a stilts. That would have been way expensive. You know, everything would have been, you know. But they can, mate. That's the point. They've all got equity in their homes. Even if they sure. couldn't afford it with cash, they could release equity. That's the point. Yeah. They actually can. Like, they, they all, the, all the buying power is in, with those people. I guess for me, I, I see that point, but I, I, I don't buy the whole... Oh, they had a, they had, a, they've got a better run than we did. I think we have so much, you know, you look at everything from nutrition to knowledge. I mean, free knowledge, internet invented free knowledge. Yeah. And before, you know, I, I can't, I can't value that. I can't say, oh, well, my house is worth more, but I've got access to infinite information and, and it's free. Yeah. I don't well, get the encyclopedia seller once a year. You know, it's almost the the younger you are, the better the time is it is to be born. Humankind is more advanced, and so you get all the benefits of that accumulated knowledge. But at the same time, Lackey's right in the sense that that this you know anyone born after about nineteen eighty five, you know, apart from, can't afford a house in a decent city, you know, in a decent part of a decent city. And I think that's the point that you're making, Lackey, is this this the baby boomer generation and the and the generation before that have got this extraordinary wealth by virtue of the fact that they bought a house in the 60s or the 70s. Yeah, I, I think um, just purely economically, they're better off. I totally agree that everything else from a technology standpoint is better. Um, globally, you know, people live longer, less, less, you know, less percentage of the population goes hungry. Uh, so there's that. I'm not actually arguing that. I'm just arguing purely economically, I think, uh, the generations from 85 onwards, let's say, are going to have to pay um, for the one before them in some way. And, and yeah. I don't even think it's really that, that, that profound of a statement at this point. Well, a lot of that built-up wealth is going to make its way to stilts. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. <laughs> I mean, one of the big changes that I'm feeling with the whole fucking, do we have to call it COVID-19? It needs a rebrand already, this thing, is the two things that I could see happening is that People are going to move out of people trapped in a little flat uh, who used to commute are going to think, fuck this. I'm going to go live on the coast and actually it'd be good for your business. And that's why I'm going to die. And I think I'm just going to find somewhere. But then the opposite is true that some people will w want to be in offices. Like I was wondering whether after this, there's going to be like companies promoting themselves that they're not Zoom or that they are Zoom. You know what I mean? Like companies going, yeah. We're a real yeah, yeah. company. We don't do Zoom. And because Zoom yeah. kind of works, but when you mix it, yeah, I don't know where you are on that as a sort of... Yeah, I agree. So like I said before, the, the with the care home stuff, they'll have to have some redesigns. I think offices will obviously have to have some redesigns. So companies that can deal with social distancing where they can still have an office... Uh, I think will succeed that you'll, you'll need a mix. I mean, there are some companies which are completely decentralized already. Like the famous one is, um, automatic, which is the parent company of WordPress. So they basically, every, every website is basically a WordPress under the hood, like the theme it's built on. And, uh, they famously don't have an office and a couple of thousand people all distributed. Um, like they make it work, but you're talking about one in, <laughs> Again, one in a billion. Do you think for engineering and for R and D, you need to be together? Yeah, you, well, ultimately, you do. You need to like <laughs> if you're in software, you don't. But if you're not in software, 
uh, if you're actually making things and widgets, you need to be, you know, we're a manufacturer. You can't get away from manufacturing. And like this pisses me off. It's like all these tech companies or software companies really, um, you know, talking about how things should be done. But it's like, yeah, but how do I get a cup? How do I get a chair? I can't build a fucking chair in software. Like just. 3D printing, mate. Oh, yeah, 3D printing, yeah. That's the solution. Yeah. The, oh, uh, yeah. the Star yeah. Trek thing that just produces objects, as it were. Sure. It makes it in, like, three types of plastic. Or you can, or you can get a metal 3D printer, which SpaceX uses to great advantage, but, the, the, you know, they're only, like, a million quid each or whatever. Well, well, what does SpaceX do with a metal printer? You can 3D print in metal. It builds up weld, like metal dust and you weld it. So it's the same as a plastic 3D printer, but you do it in metallics. Isn't the problem that elect electrics and 3D printing, isn't that the, the problem with 3D printing? I don't know about that, but I think that would make sense. I mean, the problem for me with 3D printing is that it's prohibitive in cost uh, in the metallic example. And things aren't made in one material. 3D printers can only print in one material. So until you can have a plastic... 3D printer, which also does wood, which also does uh, uh, composites, which also does metal. Like it's 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 good for some things. Uh, the electronics, I don't actually know about, but yeah, I don't think you can 3D print the electrical circuits. You'd still have to have the normal wiring looms and stuff like that. So where do you where do you take the business from here? More of the same, I think. There's still, like I said, we're still early. All the things we've just been talking about just looks like runway to me. Everyone's getting older. Everyone's going to age in place. The government's going to back that horse because they won't have a choice, in my opinion. Um, you know, I want some competitors at this point because it's it's fantastic uh, spending all this money on advertising and getting a brand out there. It's it's wonderful not having you know real competition or what I what I perceive as real competition, really. But you know, it'd all be sped up if we had a bit more of a, a cohort of competitors. You asked me about Stanner before I forgot to mention it. When the deal didn't go through, they said, oh, bugger you guys, we're going to go copy you and make our own version, all this sort of stuff. And they certainly tried to, but it's just a really good lesson in <laughs> in business strategy because you've, even with all the will in the world, it's not easy to change what you do, especially if you're a manufacturer. Manufacturers are very vertically integrated, right? So they, they manufacture stainless and they manufacture hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, you know, I think they've, they've done like a million stainless or something ever. But the further you are vertically integrated, the harder it is to switch to another product. Um, you have all this inertia, you know, 5,000 employees geared, wake up every day trying to sell stainless. And then you throw in another product even if it's got potential disruptive value to your core business, it's just why it would actually be, I think sort of imprudent of them to even think about not doubling down on their core business. Cause they're still growing. They can still be growing 20% a year. If they concentrated on it, they've got uh, a huge market to address in stairlifts. So yeah, they, you know, they tried to copy us and things like that, but no one's, no one's really come along and in, in, with the, with all the benefits of our product. And that's the point. Like our product is different. It is novel. It has real benefits, which lead to sales. Uh, hence our growth rate. Big companies struggle to innovate. Big companies yeah. buy innovation. Oh. They sit in the boardroom and you've tried to pitch this new idea and 
they just they just trip over each other. I don't know what it is. Yeah, that's 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 a really good point. They just it's hard for them to maneuver. Uh, but where do we go from here? So we we need to, the point is we need to do more in the markets we're in. We need to get into new markets. And we need to do a lot of R and D and and grow the market. So just more of the same, more of the same. But um, pretty pleased. Like last week, we got given the uh, the news. We got a Queen's Award for enterprise, which is pretty cool. Um, do you get to meet her? Um, I don't know. Apparently, well, not at the moment, but you get to do something. Um, it basically is a logo. You get a really flash logo to use for five years. So, you know, it all helps. It all helps. That's cool. Cause it's something like, it was one of the goals I'd set, uh, in the beginning. So really to get a Queens yeah. award specifically. Yeah. That's quite mm-hmm. an unusual thing. I mean, I think what strikes me is always that you were ballsy. I mean, you you dropped out of uni and just went for it. One way ticket. Like not many people do that. That's a certain mentality of not being, a f- well, not following what you, I don't know, what your parents have told you you should do or what your peers tell you you should do. There's so much pressure to sort of follow yeah. a beaten path. Yeah, for sure. It was, um, it became clear to me, uh, I mean, this is true, it became clear to me when I was backpacking with Cam that like, I'd, even before then I decided I wanted to do something and start something. But, I mean, that's not enough. It's not enough just to want to do it. It's like an idea, you need you need some other added value, like some sort of, I don't know, something burning there. There was that, but I think one of the things I wanted to talk about was probably just in terms of starting a business, the reason you see <clears throat> I think I've thought quite a lot about this, but Sadie had talked about how, how great I am for half an hour. So like, let's be real. Um, you have to be incredibly naive, you know, in a word to do it. You have to be young. Cause if you, if you had any, if I had any experience in the world, you just wouldn't do it. You just, you wouldn't move to the other side of the world to start a business. It's just, well, you can't, you can't take the risk. So there's like this risk profile, which you get for free basically when you're a kid. So I think you should take it. It's no coincidence that a lot of these once in a decade companies are started by young people. Cause it's not just the fact in the media, all you hear about is Zuckerberg or the Google guys before, before him, it's or Gates before him or the Apple bloke before, you know, it's, they were just so brilliant that they had such a strong mind and they were visionary and they, they saw the world a different way and they had to have it that way. And that's true. So you need that. But um, you also need a shitload of naivety to even think like that and a huge amount of stubbornness or arrogance even that you see, <laughs> you see the world differently to how everyone else sees it and you're so confident that you're going to go all in on it. So I just think that um, perhaps that side of it isn't spoken about enough and I don't even think it's admitted, whereas I think it's just the reality of uh, of starting a business and taking a big risk is you can't do it when you're older. As we close, let me ask you what advice, I'm going to ask you two bits of advice and I think the bits of advice are probably going to be the same. Um, what advice would you give your you know, your 21-year-old self? And what advice would you give to any young person who's starting a business at the moment? Are, are they the same bits of advice? What, what, what would those two bits of advice be? Yeah, so if I was 21, I would say, don't panic. Everything's going to be fine. The sun comes up tomorrow. Take a risk. 
uh, if it doesn't work out, you're still young and you can go and do something else. That's, that's, you know, so that's kind of what I was saying before. I'm just fortunate that I actually took that advice, even though, uh, I was at that age. And then the second one would be, if you're starting a business, I wouldn't worry too much about the macro stuff. I think people talk about this way, way, way too much. And no offense, Andy, I think accountants are guilty of that as well. You're talking about starting a business, you know, want to have this in order and that in order, but actually none of that matters. If you have a, if you have a good model and if you have good fundamentals and, and you can, you can basically, you can grow through any macro trend. You need to sort out the, the product, the service, the pricing, that stuff. You need to, you need to get money in the door. That's what I would say. You just need to concentrate about hustling, getting sales. Don't worry about who's doing your books and when the VAT returns coming in and like, do I have a good enough, uh, who's going to ship, who's going to do the import license into some country. Life's too short to worry about all that sort of stuff. You need to create, you need to earn the right to worry about those problems. And to get to that stage, you need to, you need to sell some shit and you need to sell a lot of it because if you don't, there's going to be no cash coming through the door. So I would just concentrate on that. That's great advice. That's almost the, you get, when you start a business, you end up talking to professionals and you get very wrapped up in the sort of structure and the system and, and, and yep. honestly, it's all bullshit. You've got to buy something and sell it for more yeah. than you bought it. Yeah. If you want to pay your accountant, you know, you need to fucking get something through the door. Um, I use accountant as an example, but there are so many examples. Just create a pile of shit, go out there, create some havoc. You can always clean the havoc up later. <laughs> Mate, well done on you. Well done on building a business. Ten years, you know, from from you and a Chris Backett and a mate called Cameron, you know, to, to thirty million. They, 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 those aren't easy things to do. Um, and I think, I, I, I mean, I'm not even blowing smoke up your ass. There's nothing but more to look ahead. You know, you're you're providing a product that you can go to sleep and feel good about. You know, you're not you're providing something that's helping people every day. You know, that's nice. Do you have a lift? That's my final question. Do you have one in your house? I don't. I rent a flat, which is one story, so I str- struggle. <laughs> I struggle to get one in. Um, so, Lachlan, do tell, uh, how do people find out more about you or more about your business? Uh, I'm not, I don't really have any social media, so... Um, What's the company website? Stilts. Yeah, stilts.co.uk, S-T-I-L-T-Z, stilts.co.uk. Uh, just whack us in a Google Stilts Lifts. Um, yeah, there's company pages on LinkedIn. Well, thanks, Lachlan. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without Until then, from Andy Urie and me, Dominic Frisbee, it's cheerio. Cheerio.